welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Well, here we are again. Another week has gone by, has zipped by, and until yesterday, I wasn't sure where I was going. I mean, in terms of this podcast, I'm not sure where I'm going independent of this podcast sometimes. It's hot, so you will probably hear the ceiling fan clicking above me, so do forgive me, but it's the only way to go to have that ceiling fan on. Something did pop into my mind in the last day or so, and it was a phrase. The phrase is, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I never much thought about that before, that it sounds like a contradiction, but it turns out it's not. And I think it's sort of what's going on in history around me, both in terms of our secular society that I'm always ranting about, and the Catholic Church, which I'm also occasionally ranting about, but which I have come to believe in the deepest recesses of my heart that there is no salvation outside of. Now, there's a subject for another time. But what makes the phrase, the idiom, more interesting to me now, specifically, is that in the last day or so, the U.S. CCB decided to do a teaching document with regard to Eucharist and the pro-abortion Catholics who are in public places, politicians who continue to receive communion without the benefit of adherence to this very basic precept that all life is sacred and that abortion is a grave sin and not a something to be celebrated with signs and hoopla. So what's the first thing I did? I went to ye old internet to see where the phrase even comes from. I assumed it came from some religious source, but at first I couldn't find it anywhere in terms of any definitive author. And I guess the end result is that I still don't know who the definitive author is, and nobody else seems to anyway. One of the people it's attributed to, however, but there is nothing in any of his published writings or writings that are known that have him saying this, was that it was St. Bernard of Clairvaux who said en français, l'enfer est plein de bonne volonté ou désir which translates to hell is full of good wishes or desires, or hell is full of good intentions and wishes. So anyway, what I did after I found out that I couldn't find a dedicated author of the phrase, I went again to the internet, but decided to still look at it since one of the people to whom it was attributed, this statement was a Catholic saint, Well, let's go a little further and see what some other Catholics have said about this phraseology. I needed a bit of a frame for what was rattling around my head. One that I found is written by someone named Vincent Ruggiero, and it was in the Catholic Journal about uh, two months ago. It's entitled, The Grave Danger of Good Intentions. He uses some biblical passages to show that this society's focus on good intentions as somehow the be-all and end-all is a huge error. And then he gives some examples which 
I suppose, depending on your ideological position in a very divisive world, would be considered alt-right. I do not, by the way, uh, but I understand in this sort of narrative world where things are very simplistic and without nuance that some people might say that. He gives some examples. One of the first ones is the good intention is stop the spread of COVID-19 and the action he refers to is the closing of restaurants and businesses indefinitely. And then he says the unfortunate consequence is that there is an increase in unemployment. Now it happens that I do agree with him based upon my sense of what's been happening in the last year plus that not only were restaurants closed but uh, people became psychologically distressed. Uh, I personally think that some of the things we're seeing on airplanes where people are trying to open doors is a result of all of this craziness having finally gotten to them. You can't put human beings in a box and close the lid and expect that they're going to be psychologically stable. But I want to thank this article and Mr. Ruggiero because it sort of got me thinking about things in the church right now very specifically and in terms of our practices of our faith that also show or perhaps show more poignantly because we're talking about our spiritual selves the danger of good intentions by ourselves and by our leaders that has sort of seeped in through the last 60, 70 years. Here's one of my first examples that comes out of the COVID era, and it was done with great intention, good intention by the leaders of the Catholic Church that we have yet to see the result of, but in my truly observational opinion, is not going to end well at a time when we already have such a dearth of people coming to Mass on a weekly basis. So the good intention was because of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, people who are Catholic no longer have an obligation to go to Mass weekly. So you could say the good intention is that as a good parent, a good leader, a good shepherd, you make it easier for people during this time when their government is not permitting them to go to Mass or permitting limitations in going to Mass, another separate issue, that you tell them that there is no mortal sin in failing to go to Mass. But the downside is that here we are this last week when suddenly everyone is told, certainly in California, I think this has already happened in other states, when the bishops say, oh, by the way, if you don't go to Mass on the Sundays, that's a mortal sin again. What I think should have been done is what has always been done when you're ill, for example. You're truly ill and you cannot go to Mass. It's a mortal sin if you intentionally fail to go to Mass, but your illness creates an impossibility. And so in your case, you lack the intention to commit a mortal sin, and therefore there is no sin. Now you might say it's a semantic, but no, because if they had done that here, while the churches were closed completely in Los Angeles, they were closed for what, about two months, month and a half, there was a true impossibility for people to go to mass because the churches were closed. But then the churches did open up outside, but now you had this suspended obligation and so people would say, well, 
I don't have to go to Mass, so I'm just not going to go. I can watch it on TV. It created no urgency about the fact that Mass had been restricted, and now it was opened up somewhat. And it basically tried to make it easier so people didn't have to make reservations in some parishes, or that they didn't have to make an effort to go because there was no sin in their failure to do so. So the difference is, in the way it was done, the rule was dispensed with completely. Instead of keep the rule and recognize exceptions. I guess what I'm saying is that by doing it the way that it was done, it attenuates the truth of the seriousness of receiving the sacraments of going to Mass. And while it may be God's rule that we attend Mass, it looks like that it's actually man's rule because men suspend it, men bring it back. It's kind of like, again, the parent who wants to make life easier for his or her child and so doesn't require them to say mow the lawn or do house chores, but just gives them everything. And then suddenly says, you know, you really should be doing something for all the things that I do for you while you're living under my roof. And the kid says, why? You've never made me do that before. Why is it suddenly an important thing? It's the parent who, wanting to do what's best for the child, thinks they know what is best for the child based upon how they feel. They feel that the child needs it easier, but they're really not thinking about the best interest of the child, which is that they need to have handrails. While making things, quote, easier in the here and now, the result is to make things more difficult in the near and distant future. It lacks deliberation. It feels unfair to tell people that it's still a sin to not go to Mass during a pandemic, but it lacks a deliberation in terms of the future, the consequence, the fact that if it's okay now to dispense, there will always be reasons to say that the rule does not apply, rather than say the rule must apply, but we look at exceptions, limited exceptions. So in this way, there are limits to the exceptions as opposed to everything is acceptable and the rule becomes an afterthought. It becomes arbitrary and inconsistently applied. This really is the story of the church in the last 70, 80 years. Going to Mass is supposed to be about God, not about whether I feel that I'm getting enough out of it. It's not just another entertainment. To make church going more relevant to human beings in the short term, it made it less relevant to the God that is supposed to be served. The good intention, perhaps, was to bring people to God, but it had the opposite effect. And that effect was something that could have been foreseen if someone were truly thinking about the good as opposed to what they felt would be good. So what should they have said? The obligation to attend Mass pertains. If you cannot truly, after making an effort to attend Mass, where churches are somewhat open, then that impossibility and your effort and intent to go to Mass are sufficient. You are being prevented from attending Mass. There cannot be a sin in that circumstance. But as soon as you are able, having made the effort to go to Mass, you must go to Mass.
and as things open up more, the obligation pertains again, and you must attend Mass. Instead, the obligation itself was removed, albeit intended to be for a short period of time, but the result is catastrophic. Here's another broader example. We live in a time where, among Catholics, as with the rest of the population, the idea of what is a sin is dubious. Perhaps the idea was, and I completely understand the good intention here because, as I've said, I was, as a young person, early raised in the more strict traditional church, and one could argue that there were excesses in terms of everything seemed to send you to hell. So the good intention in opening the windows, letting the air in, was to reduce that feeling in people and no longer to present the Catholic Church as some medieval authoritarian human enterprise and free people from a scrupulosity. But the end result was that people did not seek any more the sacrament of confession and they felt no great need to attend to a reconciliation affair. Confession suggests an obligation. Reconciliation suggests that things are a little bit more loosey-goosey and not necessarily urgent. One could say that the effect was that the leadership wanted the people to love them when the critical part was that they should love God, which imposes obligations. And one wonders, at least I wonder for myself, whether the effort to have the good intention to make things feel easier actually did make things easier for people like me and for people today. All it did for me is create a cognitive dissonance. What I heard before mustn't be true because it could be dispensed with with such ease. And so, as I've said, like many baby boomers, I left the church for a long time. And the good intention of making people feel good about what they do or don't do led to people like Ted Liu, who has announced what he believes in, which is, alas, completely antithetical to Catholic teaching, but he tells us he's a Catholic. Not only does he tell us he's a Catholic, but it makes you think that those of you who have been following the teachings of the Church are somehow the outsiders who have no right to even articulate the teachings of the church. And this is where the devil gets his due, because he can twist human beings into believing that something that is totally evil is a good. So, with the best of intentions, the Catholic Church has lost huge numbers of members. And in a peculiar sort of way, undaunted, the church continues to do things that will guarantee the further loss of membership. This very week, the USCCB voted to produce a teaching document on the coherence of the Eucharist and hopefully to instruct our Catholic politicians about how they're behaving and how they ought to behave when it comes to the Eucharist, which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. When I heard that there was going to be a teaching document, and it may turn out to be wonderful, I don't know, but the first thought I had was, we have 2,000 years of teaching. If that ain't enough, then this additional document isn't going to make a darn bit of difference. And the other terrifying thing is that 55 bishops don't even want to do that.
what are some of the smaller things that we've lost as a result of the good intention to make the mass more accessible to the people? And by the way, I'm one of those people who like the Novus Ordo if it's celebrated reverently. The reverence is because it's what's due to God, the worship, the reverence toward God. But the mass, the Novus Ordo, as it was being celebrated and is still celebrated in many places, is kind of like a show under the big top. And every sort of serious representation of the need to worship God is diminished. It is no longer really about the creator, it's about the creature. Now, to me, that's a good intention gone horribly wrong. The other day, a friend of mine gave me a rather good, and I recommend it if you want to get a hold of it, a little booklet, it's actually a pamphlet, on the examination of conscience for adults and teens. It's put out by the Fathers of Mercy in Auburn, Kentucky. I have to say it is quite thorough in terms of the concepts of how to examine your conscience with regard to the Ten Commandments, the precepts of the church, questions that you should ask yourself, and there are lots of questions here that because of the good intentions to make things a little less harsh for us Catholics, seem to have gotten lost in the shuffle. Here's one for the Catholic politicians. Have I failed to educate myself concerning the teachings of the Church? Oh, it's not just for them, it's for me too, it's for all of us. But given the public nature of politicians, it seems really important to them. Here's another. Did I receive Holy Communion in the state of mortal sin? Well, that can't make some of us feel better because I suspect very strongly if we're telling ourselves that some of our behaviors are perfectly okay, despite the fact that they obviously, manifestly, are in complete contradiction to the teachings of the Church, we must be ab initio committing a mortal sin. Here's one. Sins against the theological virtues. Number five, obstinacy in sin. Final impenitence, which means a refusal to repent. Now, I want to be clear. I am not pointing a finger at anyone. I'm simply pointing out that there are certain things that are either true and your good intention doesn't change anything. It actually is a potential in condemning us. When I read this pamphlet, I go, holy cow, how many things in the last few 50 years I haven't really considered in my receipt of the sacraments and in my going to confession. In this pamphlet they have um, a reference to Galatians 5, 19-21 in terms of the way of darkness, which is sin, and the works of the flesh. Here's the list. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, rivalry, jealousy, outbursts of fury, acts of selfishness, dissensions, factions, occasions of envy, drinking bouts, orgies. I don't know, but as I'm reading this, I'm thinking this defines our society, all of these works of the flesh. And I don't care how decent a person you are, Catholic or non-Catholic, these things being constantly thrust at you cause you to become inured to the fact that they are or lead to sin. Good intention leads us here. When you make something like the Mass less dramatic, less serious, less about God and more about the human being, 
little things occur. For example, one of the examination of conscience questions, actually two of them, was did I arrive at Mass late through my own fault? And then the second one, did I leave Mass early? Well, I don't know about your church, your parish, but that pretty much defines how Catholics come to Mass these days, when they come to Mass. They come late, usually after the Gospel, and they leave right after Communion, before the dismissal. The little things lead to big things. It reminds me, reading that, of the broken window syndrome that occurred in New York back in the 70s and 80s. When I used to ride the elevated train to work, I would pass by all sorts of buildings, five-floor walk-ups, that were lining the elevated train route. And one after another, windows were broken in those buildings. Mostly they were abandoned buildings, but sometimes they weren't. And the solution, with great intention, was to put up fake windows, sort of painted windows, to make it look better to those who were riding the train and presumably to resolve the issue in some way, but without requiring anything of the people who were breaking the windows. The new mayor at the time, Rudy Giuliani, somehow, I don't remember exactly how he did it, but maybe by making such a thing a crime, was able to get a reversal for a time. What Catholics need to hear in this very small thing is you have not attended Mass if you come late and you leave early. This is not about you. This is about giving thanks and worship to God. God will give you great gifts because he loves you, but not because you decide how to control him. The folks that are resisting the Catholic Church's teachings right now would probably tell you that they have the good intention of making the Church more in tune with the real world to make people feel more like a community, accessible, but they're taking away what distinctly makes the Catholic Church. It makes the Catholic Church itself moot, unnecessary, just another part of the society that all agree that everything is permissible. There are many things that the average Catholic, me, I'm an ordinary Catholic, consider very difficult in order to be part of the Church. But it is irrational, it seems, for me to demand that it is the church that should change. If I am so certain of my good intention to live a certain way, then I should be free and able and willing to live that way without demanding that the church change to be in accord with me, the creature. When I left the church, because I couldn't fully embrace everything it taught, I didn't think of it that way, but that's truly what it was. What I was doing was being a coward and adding another stone to the highway to hell. I am as susceptible as anybody to the fruits of these so-called good intentions. It's got to be hard for the leaders of the church. We've gone so far in eradicating the, quote, rules, such that a Catholic politician like Ted Liu can list a series of things that are absolutely against Catholic teaching and still successfully call himself Catholic. And naturally, there's a fear of saying, you know what, you're wrong, and you are not behaving as a Catholic. You can call yourself anything you want, but this is not Catholic teaching. It may be that the discipline that must be imposed, and I use the word discipline as training, because that's what discipline is. 
the stick on training is that there is a consequence when you don't abide by the discipline. That this discipline has to be imposed from the ground up. That all of us who are disobeying various precepts, all of us, have to be held to the fact that it is a sin. And that we cannot behave in these ways and continue to receive communion. Here's the case where the rule, if you will, is applied equally to everyone. Me, you, the Catholic politician, it doesn't matter. If we are not living in accord with the teachings of the Church, we cannot receive communion. That simple. And I know that it's not that simple in a world where everything has become okay because it feels okay. So, in this case, instead of perhaps a teaching document aimed only at Catholic politicians, I'm not sure what they're going to do, there should be a reminder to the Catholic faithful that if you support in any way the procurement of abortion, then you cannot receive communion. That's it. If you decide that you want to continue to support abortion, then you've made a choice. We talk about choice. You've made a choice. Stand by your choice. You believe you're morally in the higher ground, then you don't need the Catholic Church. What seems inconsistent to me, and really gravely so, is if you say, well, I believe that the Catholic Church has in the Eucharist the body, blood, and soul, and divinity of Christ, and then say, I also believe in abortion, which is antithetical to Christ's teachings, and receive him at the same moment. To me, it seems like a deliberate slap in Christ's face, another blow at the pillar of the scourging, one of the very sins he died over, and something he hoped of which we would repent. I can think of several sins I have, and probably will commit again, that would be in this category. He should accommodate to me. The God of the universe should accommodate to my sinful nature. This, to me, is where good intentions have led us. Well, this ordinary Catholic sinner has come to the end of another podcast. And I thank you for listening. And if you'd like to comment, feel free to do so. I did have a comment uh, on my Facebook page for Ordinary Catholic Me, Ordinary Old Catholic Me, who basically just posted a uh, statement that not everyone believes in God and the Bible. And I thanked her because I think that's a good title for a podcast. What does that mean to the Ordinary Old Catholic Us? See you next week.